0: Chapter 2 of My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Carol Cotter, Merlotranslations.com My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum by Herman Charles Merivale Chapter 2 Since I finished the first chapter of this discourse of mine, some of the few friends to whom I confided my attention of committing my experiences to the dangerous form of the lettera scripta have been inclined to remonstrate with me for my audacity. Indeed, they seemed to think that there was something very wrong about the whole thing, that I should in some subtle way be breaking a confidence which should be devoutly kept with myself, I suppose, and that the secrets of the prison house of lunacy should be as sacred as the mysteries of Ceres of old. Whether when these papers shall have been published they will punish me in the Horatian fashion and forbid me to stretch my legs under the same mahogany or tempt the fragile bark in their company, I cannot say. But I am at a loss to see my crime. I feel disposed to quote a saying of Shirley Brooks in Punch, which always struck me as one of his funniest, when in answer to numerous inquiries why his famous paper was published on Wednesday and dated a Saturday in advance, he simply wrote in his Punch's table talk, What the deuce is it to anybody? And I repeat what I said or implied in my first chapter that as the strange experience recedes into the past, and the painful sense of insecurity dies out which at first it left behind, the blessed spirit of fun comes to my assistance, and the humour of it affects me as much as Corporal Nim. I rejoice in agreeing with a friend of mine, who, in talking the thing over, said to me, the worst of you is, you are rather brutally sane. And the absurdity of any connection between myself and a lunatic asylum strikes me so forcibly that i begin to rub my eyes and ask myself whether it all really happened it seems some degrees less real than it did even when i finished the last chapter so i cannot get on the same standpoint as my friends or discover that i am hurting my own feelings by my own disclosures as they appear to think that i must If I hurt those of anybody else, it is neither fault nor affair of mine. There are unfortunately too many people in the world who cannot be supposed to have any to hurt. And to expect that a scribe should refrain from making capital of such an adventure is to ask too much of a mercenary humanity. When various angry designs upon the law, for actions for false imprisonment, had given way to the reflection that the justice which got me into the mess was not likely to set me right afterwards, and it had struck me forcibly that it would be better to sit down and calmly to narrate my travels in the dark land than to pay for the chance of redress. I grew very comfortable about the whole matter men have travelled and fought and got besieged and shut themselves up among the paupers and done many strange things before this for the mere purpose of writing books about their doings but i feel sure that no man ever submitted to be treated as a lunatic with that view for if he had he might never have escaped had he been as sane as i to tell his story I know that for some time I might have been under the impression, which a friend of mine, who once paid a visit to the asylum, told me had been decidedly his, that the house doctor, whose business it was to cure us, and above all to set us free, was one of the most remarkable madmen in the place. Well, do I remember how, when I sank into a state of depression and absence of mind, over the billiard table on the tenth repetition of some especially dull old story of his, and quite forgot to score, this doctor reported me to my relatives, and I dare say to Her Majesty's commissioners, as having fallen into a dangerous condition of torpor. Torpor was the word. De Quincey himself, with all his power of eloquence and word-painting, might have found even the dreams of an opium-eater less difficult to fix and to describe than the marvellous fancies and dissolving views of hypochondria. When it passes from the domain of fancy into that of real illness, In that earlier and fanciful stage, it may or may not be conquerable by that effort of the will which is so easy to preach and so hard to practice. But in the second it is, save by the action of what I suppose I must call, in days when a higher and a nobler name is something out of date in the best circles, the vis medicatrix naturae, practically incurable. The doctors who know what Gallen knew and know more, but apparently believe in themselves nonetheless even for the teaching of Molière, are powerless before it. Their kindness of heart abounds, as thank god there is much of it everywhere, but their skill does not keep pace with it. One of the kindest of them whom I know, and I think the most sensible, told me that he had once under his care a lady who was suffering from hypochondria in a severe form. She recovered, and some time afterwards she met with an injury to the spine, of which she died in great pain. When she was dying, she told him that her sufferings were as nothing to what she remembered of the mental pain of that first illness. And I believe it to the full, though we know that mercifully there is nothing we forget so soon as pain. Add to that indefinable and wearing agony the surroundings of a large lunatic asylum, beyond conception the most cruel place for such a malady, with medical supervision merely nominal, where all, with scarcely an exception, are regarded as incurably mad and simply kept out of the way to save families trouble, and the pen of a De Quincey would help me as little in the description as my own. I shall therefore begin quietly from the beginning. In these coddlesome and unmanly days of ours, it is becoming almost rare to meet, in London life at all events, with a man who is not more or less of a hypochondriac about that unlucky scapegoat of modern times, his liver. It is represented as such a ubiquitous, elastic and sentient being that personally I am beginning to disbelieve in its existence altogether. And regard it as a sort of Mrs. Harris in the human economy. Since the spread of what I may respectfully call Andrew Clarkism amongst us, the humorist may find ceaseless matter for meditation at the club dinner table and at ladies' luncheon parties in finding out the exact number of glasses of wine, the quality never seems to be taken into consideration somehow, which each respective liver will bear and the relative size of the plate of cold meat or egg its equivalent which may be consumed with slow mastication the wine or the one glass of cold water which is undoubtedly better must be sipped not swilled and the general effect though depressing is excellent if persevered in That it is seldom persevered in longer than nature will allow, and that the patient after a time rushes to the nearest and best-filled board under the influence of uncontrollable thirst and hunger, and so brings a grateful liver to willing reason, is probably the cause why this modified sangredism survives so long. The days of alcohol are theoretically numbered, but I doubt if they will ever be practically. In older and simpler times it was known as wine to strengthen the heart of man and why the temperance doctors who prove beyond dispute that alcohol is not food in forbidding it always instruct their victims to resort to a corresponding increase of animal sustenance is beyond my academic logic. It implies a syllogism as much outside of the domain of our old friend Barbara Sellerant as Macaulay's famous argument. Most men wear coats, most men wear waistcoats, therefore some men wear both. But the logic of medicine is not as the reason of other trades. I had been thinking of these things the other day when I went to church and heard the dear old story of Cana in Galilee. And no reverent mind will accuse mine of irreverence if I say that, in spite of myself, my thoughts shaped themselves into an epigram. A miracle of love divine changed all the water into wine, save me from miracles of men, who want to change it back again. This is a digression, but very germane to the matter in hand, for a long course of inanition on the modern principle, not sufficiently combated by submission to nature's clamorous invitations to eat, drink and be merry, and on the other hand indefinitely accelerated by the fearful shock of a course of German waters, was the prelude to the illness into which I fell. Never mind with what it began. It has been said over and over that work hurts nobody, but that worry kills. Home troubles, perhaps beginning with the death of a very near and dear relation under circumstances of exceptional pain, were in my case the real foundation of the mischief, which grows very fast by what it feeds on when worry supervenes. I had, unfortunately, no necessity to work became less and less disposed to do anything and more and more the victim of diet tables and prescriptions with all their sad concomitants of dyspepsia and want of sleep and as a common consequence the abuse of that grim and baleful drug hydrate of chloral. The well disposed interior will revolt at the very memory of its hideous taste and fly to warning and remonstrance. As day by day the illness crept upon me and the weary phantom of self, and self from its most distorted and morbid point of view, absorbed at last every thought and every energy. The well-known differentia of the illness, the ground was being comfortably cleared for the experience that was to follow. Bred in the careless modern school of indifference to higher hopes and feelings, never an unbeliever, I hope, remembering Dr. Johnson's saying, Sir, if he is an infidel, tis as a dog's an infidel, he never thought about it. But practically living the life of one, I was without the one stay and rest which can carry men triumphantly over worse troubles than mine. I had to kill self, as all of us must, who would fain rise upon the stepping stones of the dead giant to better things, before my illness was to bring forth its fruit. I hope and pray that it has done so now." It strikes me that I am preluding still, but I believe that my experience thus far will appeal directly to many hundreds of men and I wish to warn them fully and fairly. It is my object in these papers to do so, under the present condition of our law, to what hypochondria may lead, if they carry it so far as to bore their nearest and dearest, justly desirous to be amused and comfortable in life. Let me pass those fearful German waters briefly over. I arrived at Carlsbad one summer all alone and half worn out, and that salubrious spot wore out the other half with generous rapidity. Every morning in the small hours, when I ought to have been putting on flesh in bed, I drank away at some spring or another, a fraction of my few remaining pounds of it, in company with a long train of fellow idiots. The waters of Carlsbad work as neatly as Shylock would have done. Only they require a stone where the Jew was content with a pound. Antonio was an arch hypochondriac by the way. I wonder if Shakespeare, who was proved to have been everywhere and done everything, had been to Carlsbad and concealed an allegory? I saw at least three doctors at the place, for my first fell ill, and my second could never remember what spring he had ordered me, being convinced that only one could hit my case, and changing it therefore every time. O Carlsbader Wasser, werdet ihr nicht besser, als eure Doktoren wir werden verloren. So ran an agonized distich I found written up on a rock somewhere. But doctors and waters are much of a muchness, I think. Yearly will Charles's bath claim its hecatomb, I know not why. Havrogate is as nasty and as dangerous. To my mind, all of the poisons distilled out of the bowels of the sometimes harmful earth. These same waters are the worst. Strength and weakness are convertible terms for health and sickness, and that which weakens by reducing maketh not strong. And at this point of my sermon take warning again, ye hypochondriacs, and beware. I returned from Karlsbad seriously ill, and I grew worse very rapidly. The supposed reaction which is so ingeniously claimed as the result of these nasty drinks... To account for the natural fact that all but the Herculean among the drinkers grow steadily worse for some time afterwards, and better again when the effects have passed off, failed to show itself in me for some years. It did at last, no doubt, and I may send a vote of tablets to Carlsbad yet. I became, as I said, a bore. I was passed on from doctor to doctor, and as one of them frankly said, each gave me another kick down the ladder. On one of the steps only do I ask to linger for a moment, and to thank the one among them, true friend and good man, whose eye this may chance to meet, to whom I owe as much as one man can owe to another, in this world. Only he and I, in this world, know what I mean. At last I reached the lowest rung of the medical ladder indeed, for what the wine trade is to the man who has failed generally, so I take it is the lunacy trade with marked and fine exceptions, of course, to the doctor who is no good for any other speciality, and knows he is not. His province is the unknown. The law works for him. He is in charge of a certain number of unfortunate, whom others, not he, have pronounced mad. He argues, when he argues at all, backwards. He has not to say to his patients, your words and thoughts are inconsecutive, your eye is wandering, and therefore you are mad. But you are mad. Therefore, your words and thoughts are inconsecutive, and your eye is wandering. This argument has been absolutely used in that shape with me, and I leave honesty to judge what the effect was. But I could not afford to be angry, for that would have been excitement and matter still. The position in which you put some of us, some of you, with the light heart of Monsieur Emile Olivier, is a cruel and terrible one indeed for the man conscious of sanity, but under the ban, ladies and gentlemen. And believing, as I do so, that I am one of the very few who can ever have come through such an ordeal as this with all his wits throughout about him, I cannot wonder for a moment that others have been content to sit down quietly under this most intolerable wrong, and to hold their tongues, lest excitement should be again brought up against them. But I will not, that is all. With all my heart I believe in the grand old Sophoclean line, which used to console Mortimer Collins Odem poth erpe psevdos yes, hieras kronon For the benefit, for those who have no Greek, no lie ever crawls to old age. And even in this coward world I believe truth is master when used as the one fearless weapon for attack or for defence. But I have been growing excited good, my readers, and I beg pardon. Some of my friends are naturally afraid of any excitement on my part. It is not easy to avoid sometimes. After this storm that has swept over my life, there is still a great strong current of righteous wrath that will run on deep down beneath it to the end, but not more deep than I mean that it shall be still. Out of the nettle danger I have plucked the rose of safety. It was bitter winter when, as the beginning of the end, I was relegated to the care of a good-natured young village medico, with about as much knowledge of the buildings of the brain, I should think, and small blame to him, as of Cambodian architecture. He was a kindly fellow and did all he could, but he dwelt in a timely hamlet on the borders of one of the dreariest tracts of our forest country, and I reflect with sorrow to what a stupendous extent I must have bored him. I am consoled by thinking that I must have been of great value to him in his studies, as he was trying his apprentice hand in nervous cases, to which he suspected himself of a call on me, and I wonder he failed to catch the malady. Goethe once said that the greatest of physical blessings is a big head with enough blood to feed it. And the greatest of physical trials, the same head without the blood, whose place has to be supplied by all sorts of fancies, which of course take the most morbid form. In my case they turned, as they have in such thousands of cases, to religious hypochondria. There is nothing more difficult to explain away on any Darwinian or Kantist hypothesis of which I am aware, than phenomena of this kind. They exist and will have to be dealt with somewhere. The curious story of John Bunyan has been repeated constantly since his days. They were trying at the time. I was fully convinced that I was the wickedest man that ever lived and even in my illness rather triumphed in the fact after the fashion of Topsy. Looking back from my present vantage ground and conscious of never having wittingly harmed anyone, I cannot imagine why I arrived at so desperate a conclusion. I must have tried that poor young doctor sadly for I never spoke of anything but my sins and my ailments, though naturally I am blessed with a keen interest in all sorts of things. Quicquid quid homines, almost. For my sins, to deal with which he felt to be outside his province, he sent to the clergyman of the village locality, who fled after five minutes discourse and, as I have learnt since, with a good sense for which I shall ever mentally thank him, wrote to some of my relatives to tell them to send me home at once, dear, good, blessed old word that is, and save me from doctors as soon as might be. They preferred an asylum. As to my ailments, I had evolved from my inner consciousness, after a varied and polyglot experience of many physicians, from whom I had suffered many things, certain astounding theories about acids and alkalis, and organic and functional disorders which were innocent of the slightest foundation in fact, but, as far as I can see, quite as well founded as those of the faculty. One of the diaphoruses, I remember, who had been baroneted for his performances, entirely declined to pronounce on me at all anything but the simple sentence, Oh Lord, take him away! Beefsteaks and cod liver oil! Had he said Burgundy instead, I had reverenced him now fully instead of partially. For I was, in fact, starving and that was all. But let me not laugh too much, for what followed was no laughing matter. I was attended at my forest doctors by a servant, picked up I know not where, who considered it his duty to cheer me by suggesting cribbage, with dirty cards, and watching me in my room night and day, till his constant presence drove me nearly wild. Three of the leading mad doctors of London, to whom I was carried in consultation, had pronounced me to be abundantly sane, though exhausted and helplessly hypochondriac, and bound to recover. So said my young doctor too. And when, one evening, after a foolish exhibition of desolate misery, and it was misery, the moral responsibility whereof, if any attached to it, I am now quite content to lay at other doors than mine." A relative arrived, and without any reference whatever to the skilled men of whom I have spoken, ordered my instant removal to another place. The same young doctor host told me that he would never have sanctioned such a step, but the relative had stayed but five minutes, left the order, and departed for foreign lands. I was therefore removed, half-dying, in a state of semi-consciousness. I can scarcely remember how, to the castellated mansion mentioned in my first chapter. The wrong should have been impossible of course, but it is possible and it is law. My liberty, and my very existence as an individual being, had been signed away behind my back. In my weakened perceptions I at first thought that the mansion was a hotel. Left alone in a big room on the first evening, I was puzzled by the entrance of a wild-looking man who described figures in the air with his hand. To an accompaniment of Gibber, ate a pudding with his fingers at the other end of a long table and retired. My nerve was shaken to its weakest, remember, and I was alone with him. It was not a hotel. It was a lunatic asylum. End of chapter 2